Hello, and welcome to the Spirit Studios podcast. My name's Al, and I'm co-hosting with fellow Spirit Studios tutor, David Cameron Pride. We're talking music business with special guest, Steve Tilly, who is a director at Kilimanjaro Live, one of the UK's most celebrated live entertainment promoters. Steve's clients include the likes of Ed Sheeran and Catfish and the Bottlemen. And in this episode, he talks about how he got started in the music industry, shares stories and advice for newcomers, and describes what it's like to work with some of the biggest acts in the world. So Steve, we go back a bit, don't we, to when you first started at Killy, I think. And the company's now grown into a really successful an important company within the, the live industry regarding booking live, live shows and events. What do you think has been key to that growth with Killy? Well, I'm going to answer this question in a different way for you. Oh, go on then. Uh, we go back to when I was a DJ and I played your records. I got sent them by the promo company that um, sent out free music at the time. So I've got all the Eskimos in Egypt stuff. Oh, mate, the, fi- the five is in the post. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so... The way I can say that answers your question is, Kilimanjaro, the promoters are all massive fans of music. Right. Like my colleague, Alan Day, is he should have won the Promoters Promoter Award in 2016, not me, because he is, he's probably the most for real promoter in the country. He is the fanboy turned promoter, but he's absolutely amazing at his job, but he's still, he's promoting Sisters of Mercy. Oh, amazing. One of his favorite bands of all time. Are they going to do some more shows then? Yeah, they're doing three roundhouses this September. Oh, nice. are you joking? That's amazing I news. Mean, Alan Day goes to see The Cure as a super fan. Brilliant. Doesn't work with The Cure, but if he did work with The Cure, he would, Robert Smith would be completely knocked to six at Alan's <laughs> knowledge of really? his career. Brilliant. So we are, me and Alan particularly, and then the other guys, we're all big fans of music. We're, we're sort of the geeks that inherited the earth, I think. <laughs> we're like... We're like the guys who were obsessed with music as kids, and um, it's that love and passion for music that made me want to work in the music industry, and that's how I ended up joining Kilimanjaro. We love bands and the artists we work with. They can tell that. Yeah. When I first started working with Example, at the end of one of the gigs, he went, you watched the whole show tonight from the mixing desk. I could see you. I was like, yeah, and what's wrong with that? And he's like, <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I didn't realize it at the time, but like we sold out Norwich UEA. There's 1,500 kids bouncing to example. Yeah. He's playing Change the Way You Kiss Me, which is clearly going to be a massive hit. And I'm completely buzzing off. I got myself into this world where I'm putting on someone like Example in Norwich and there's all these kids and this is my show. I remember having the ambition just to sell out the sugar mill. And now I'm traveling around the country putting on gigs all over the place. And I think Elliot who is example could tell that I'm really into it. Mm. That's genuine. It, yeah. If there's an art, I think as an artist, you want to work with people who are actually into it. Yeah, completely. I think that's really important to acts actually, because a lot of people fake they are and you know, they're just sniffing money. But when you do get someone who's actually a real music fan, it makes a big difference. And I, I noticed that when I came to, to, to see you guys, I felt the vibe in your place is great. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not a corporate vibe. It's a, it's a family type vibe in there. It's a really nice place. We are a bit like a dysfunctional family. Sometimes we have a row like a pair of brothers about something or other. And you know we've gone to so many gigs together as fans. Like he, one of the best gigs I've ever been to in my whole life was Tom Petty at the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, wow! And I only went because Alan bought two tickets and have anyone to go with. Really? 
uh, I've got a spare ticket for Tom Petty next week. It's 60 quid or 70 quid. Do you fancy coming? I was like, yeah, go on then. I've never seen him. That'd be all right. And then by the time I, at the end of that gig, I was like, oh my God, how have I not seen him before? Mind-blowing. Do you know what? They're some of the best gigs where you're not expecting to go. You don't even really like the artist necessarily that much. You might think they're all right. I did the same with Stereophonics, right? Never been a fan. Always thought they're a bit of a cheap man's oasis. Um, but I just thought, they're not really for me. But I got taken along to a show at the um, at the MEN it was in Manchester. It was quite near the stage. Oh, my God, they blew me away. As a live band, incredible. I just had to hold my hands up and go, do you know what? That's fantastic. They, those guys know what they're doing. They're fantastic. We we worked with Stereos in Wales. Right. Uh, Stuart was their promoter at Live Nation. And when he left the set of Kelly, he managed to keep all of the Welsh territory as his territory. Brilliant. We've done Stereos outdoors in Wrexham uh, a few years ago. We've also done a couple of shows in Cardiff at the Cardiff City Ground. I saw um, they did a few just before the dreaded, didn't they? They did a big show. Was that one of your shows, that? A big we did Cardiff, Cardiff show. Um, Cardiff Arenas last March on the that weekend. That was it. That was it. Yeah. The world shut down. Yeah, that was it. I mean, with me, they've made a fan out of me now. I've actually got massive respect for them. And when they, you know, whereas I just wasn't interested before, but seeing them live, I just thought, you know what, you got this a bit wrong. Fantastic band. You were talking a bit about your time before Killy, and you mentioned the Sugar Mill, which is a venue in Stoke. I wondered if you could kind of go back to the start of your uh, career in promoting and what it was like um, in the beginning for you. Yeah, so the first gig I ever booked was, was the first band I ever booked was The Levelers. I was helping out at the Students' Union in Stoke in 1990 or 1989, and there's a band had pulled out of one of our shows, and I took a call off the agents, who was Charlie Myatt, and he was a new agent probably back then, and uh, I I took the call because I was in the Ents office, and (sighs) he said, oh, so-and-so's pulling out of the show, but I've got you a replacement, and they're they're called the Levellers. They're like a cross between the Waterboys and New Model Army. So I booked it. It was 500 quid, and um, they came and played the show, and... Of course, the Levelers went on to have their career and um, um, Charlie's become one of the biggest agents in the business. That was the first band I booked. I'd actually worked at the Students' Union as a PA, Humper. So I got paid 10 quid a day to right. turn up and help unload the band's gear. And I just completely loved it. From the from the age of 18 onwards, I was working with the Students' Union, helping out gigs. So I was always around live music. Mm-hmm. And then I went off and did this journalism thing and got the job on the local paper in Stoke. And I was DJing to make extra money. And I was also playing in bands because I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a pop star. By the time I got to like my mid to late 20s, I realized my band wasn't going anywhere. And um, Dave Corbett was my boss at the sugar at the stage slash sugar mill, which is a club I was DJing in. And he got off a job in Scotland at DF concerts to go and work for them. So he basically just, and I was this guy on the local paper that wrote all the articles about all the bands he put on in town. <laughs> and I, he, he told me he was leaving Stoke. And I was like, well, who's going to put all the bands on? And he went, don't know. Why don't you have a go? I was like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, oh, it's all right. Just come over to mine. And I'll show you what to do. So went around, we actually went over to Chester and met him where we lived, went out for a pizza hut that we paid for. And we came out with um, a list of agents' names, numbers, rosters. And then I literally picked up the phone the next week and started ringing around all saying, hi, it's, my name's Steve Tilly. I've taken over from Dave Corbett at the stage in Stoke. I'm the promoter here now. I'm holding the diary. Um, let us know what you've got. And Dave got offered a couple of really good shows quite quickly um, as warm-ups. 
and he just literally just copied me in. Actually, it's pre-email, by the way. This is pre-email. He basically rang me up and went, have you got 20th of June? Charlie Myatt wants a Manson warm-up. Can you give him a call? I've told him you'll get back to him. So for the first few months, he was just taking shows and pushing them all onto me. God, what a guy. And the thing is, you know, me and him are still friends to this day. And then he was at the end of the phone for me for about, for about a year and a half to two years. He was basically on call. He must have seen something in you because you don't just do that off the bat. You must see someone who can take that on and has got the, you know, the ability to run with it. Yeah, I guess so. He, he'd been the promoter of the band I was in. Like we were, you know, a big local band and he'd always put us on. So he booked a band for the Wheat Chief in Stoke or the stage or the Victoria Hall. And he would be on the phone to me going, I've just booked Catatonia. Any chance of a feature? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, set me up with PR. I'll do an interview with him. And I was literally giving him so much free advertising. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then he got me a gig DJing in Scotland on, on the main stage at Tea in the Park. Wow. In 1999, I started as the main stage DJ at Tea and did that for 10 years. And over that 10-year period, every year I was at Tea in the Park, I had my backstage pass. I was allowed to stay on the main stage even when the headliner was on. Cool. When they cleared out the stage and everyone off the stage, unless you got a pass, they couldn't kick me out. <laughs> I watched REM side stage, Blur side stage, awesome. Oasis side stage. It was mind-blowing. And, of course, what that did is it gave me some credibility with the agents. Yep. Well, that's that guy from Stoke, but I'm seeing him backstage at Tea in the Park with a AAA main stage. It's a load of bollocks, isn't it? But that's the music industry in North Shell. You just keep... Keep climbing the greasy pole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talking of the greasy pole, you're getting quite towards the top of it because you work with people like Ed Sheeran. You've booked loads of huge shows for Ed. Uh, in the past, you worked with people like 1975 and you worked with Catfish and people like that. Uh, you've put on huge run of dates at Wembley, like I said. How did these relationships first start, Steve? Were you there at the beginning booking early shows for these type of acts? Yeah, totally. Um Ed supported Just Jack for, for me at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Now, if I was going to be... Or I remember idiot, Just Jack. I think he was signed to Mercury at the time, was he? Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm doing the Just Jack gig, and Ed's the support act. Now, uh-huh. I could sit here and claim, what a visionary. You got Ed, you got Ed that support. Did I, L? Ed got Ed that support, not me. Ed was badgering Jack for gigs. Right. So Jack told his manager, you need to check out this kid, Ed Sheeran. He's brilliant. I want him to open for my Shepherd's Bush gig. And then that particular night, I think actually I was probably in a bad mood because I don't think I was making any money that night. Right. So I was probably being a bit like, fuck's sake, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Typical yeah. whinging promoter. And so I turned up, saw the support. Again, at that point, I could lie to you now and go, I saw him that night. Oh, my God, <laughs> I knew. That's shite, basically. There's a support on. Who's a support? He's called Ed Sheeran. Fair enough. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's about it. So, anyway, that's true. The next day, I get a phone call off John Ollier, who was Paul Boswell's assistant at Free Trade. He went, did you see that kid who opened for Jack last night? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, uh, Stu, Jack's day-to-day manager's thinking of taking him on. He's playing Hoxton next week. We're going to go down. Do you want to come with us? Yeah, yeah, defo. Better pay attention, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I went to the Hoxton Bar and Kitchen gig, and uh, there's 30 people there. Ed was on first. He was apt. I mean, again, at this point, right? Okay, gonna come along and stand here. It was mind blowing. Like, 
And at the end of the game, he was looping, he was beatboxing, he was just, he was everything that he is now, but just younger and fresher. Yeah. And um, I, I remember saying to John and Stu, oh my God, he's amazing. Like, he's, all we got to do is work out to get him in front of as many people as possible. But did he have anything around him at that point? Was there any label or agent or anything? Nothing. 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 So then what happened is, I mean, it's just two, this is 2000, this is December 2009. Throughout 2010, I just chucked Ed the odd gig. He supported King Charles at the Lexington for us. Oh, I, I think we yeah. got him. I just, all I did is keep in touch with John and go, what's happening with Ed? What's happening with Ed? You know, it wasn't necessarily, I wasn't thinking this is going to be my ticket to the moon or whatever. I just, I was working with lots of new acts. I was enthusiastic about them. And then I just, I liked Ed. I thought he was really good. So I just kept in touch with John. And it got towards the end of 2010. We got a phone call off John. He went, they've been keeping in touch with the Ed, Ed Sheeran developments. And of course, do you know what? Maybe I hadn't been. But, but at the time, I answered the phone and went, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. He's like, right, well, we're going to start making some decisions. He's going to do a deal with Asylum. Basically, it's up to me who we go with for promoters. But you've been there from the start. You've always been really helpful. I told Stu I want to go with you. Fantastic. And of course, now the significance of that is unbelievable. Of that isn't one it? call, huge significance, yeah. Not me, but at the time I was like, yeah, okay, cool, great, you know. And then, and then he said, we're going to do a borderline direct with the venue in April or May of 2011. And then I want you to get me avails for the Scala in July and get me two nights. And then the first single is going to come out just on the, around the back of that. Um, and then we'll, then we'll take you from there. I went to the borderline. They, they did two borderlines. They sold out, put the Scala's on sale. They both sold out. By then I was also booking Wakestock and Belladrum in Scotland. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. So I got him offers for, for stages at those two festivals that summer, you couldn't get in the tents where he was playing. And of course, prior to that, he also supported Example around one of the U Live tours that I did. And then, and then, then I got some more dates with Example off the back of doing the U Live tour. And, and Elliot gave Ed the whole tour. So I went to, because I was because I was so green and so new as a national promoter. I went to every show. Yeah. <laughs> and. and no disrespect to my um, competitors at say other national promoters, but they were they weren't going to every show at that point. So I was with Ed every night. Yeah, and I went, and I said hello to his mum, and I was like got to his parents and like I I, I went into I went into his dressing room every night and went that was great. He's like an eighteen year old fresh faced kid, but I'm just in there going that was really good. Blah 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 blah. And so slowly but surely just built up a relationship with him. Yeah. And then, then it all went nuts, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, brilliant. I mean, a, a great success story, I think, because he did it himself, didn't he? He did it himself with his perseverance and his talent, and then people were seeing the talent, and gradually teams started coming around him. And I think then, at that point, with him and his management, they start picking the people they like to work with, who they feel, oh, I've got that belief. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I just think I'm, you know, because I've been a musician, I was a bass player and a drummer and a backing singer, I was a DJ up until 2008. I made I made a living out of DJing as well. I quit journalism after four years. I wasn't I wasn't into that form of making money, or it just wasn't a career for me long term. I've always loved new music. I've always loved watching live bands, and I saw Catfish and the Bottlemen in Wales at Wakestock as a local band. And I just went up to Van after they came off stage, 
I was just myself, but I just went, oh, my God, you're a star, mate. Uh, he was, and, though. Oh, oh, thanks, man. Thanks, man. Oh, you know, I was like, seriously, like, I've already had your tunes off your manager because I'm friends with her, but seeing you guys live, I don't quite know how to put this. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to insult you in any way, but basically you're making an old sound sound fresh and new again. Yeah. And there's a real trick to that. Yeah, there is. I don't know how you do it, but when we sold out Brixton Academy for two nights in November of 2014 or what, I can't even remember what year it was, but violence used to be to his dad and said, this is Steve Tilly. He's a massive promoter. He works with Ed Sheeran <laughs> and all in 1975. When he met me at Wakestock, he said he was going to make me a star. <laughs> but of course, I didn't say that. I <laughs> yeah, said, you said you are a you star. You are yeah. a fucking star. Yeah. There's a bit of a difference. Because the other way around, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like you should have your big fat cigar. I'm going to make you a star. <laughs> I thought he made it sound like yeah. I got a cigar out. Drove up, <laughs> drove up to the street, drove up to him in the street, wound the window down. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going to make you a star. You know? So, um, and 1975... <clears throat> they were the house support band for Little Comets, who I worked with. Oh, I remember them yeah, guys, yeah. yeah. Because Jamie O'Born had signed Little Comets for management and records, yeah. and he kept putting on uh, this band with Little Comets. Whatever they were called, they got the Little Comets tour, and they were called Drive Like You Do, and then they became known as The Big Sleep. And I always thought they had something. Yeah. Um, but there was nothing really going on. And then... I got call off Matt Bates. No, sorry, I, I was promoting this band from Stoke called All the Young. Ah, yeah, Matt Bates was agent for. He had taken on the 1975. Jamie emailed and said, "Oh, look, the guys have got a new name. You should make sure you check out the guys tonight." So I put All the Young on in Brighton at the uh, Green Door store, uh -huh. and All the Young are kids from Stoke that I've known since they were 16. But I, I could have been their manager, but I went off to join Kilimanjaro, so I didn't. And Matt put. 1975 on supporting all the young on this UK tour, 150 people in the green door store. I turned up early to watch the 1975 that night. They played girls, chocolate, the city. Wow. Um, all the big songs of the hits. first record. Yeah. And you'd not heard these tracks before. No. Wow. wow. And sex. I'd heard sex before because okay. that was around. And I just remember I've got, I've still got the email. And I emailed Jamie the next morning. Went, in fact, no, first thing I did is I went up to the lads stood at the van outside and went, oh, my God, you've nailed it. Fuck me, that was brilliant. Like, it's just, again, just me going, oh. And then I emailed Jamie O'Born and went, saw the guys last night, you've absolutely nailed it. They've got it. It's it's so good. I'm going to hassle Matt Bates about being the promoter. <laughs> right. And Jamie went, thanks so much. You really should. And I emailed Matt and said, I want to do it. And he said, okay, then. And I don't believe anybody else was chasing the band at that point. Wow. Anecdotally, I've heard off another promoter that they had a promoter's meeting where the, the boss went round the table in the room, which one of you lot was on this band? And all of them went, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Because in classic music industry style, there wasn't a buzz about them. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the reason why they did the deal with... Well, they, they are dirty here, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So... Jamie signed them to Dirty Hits. Dirty Hit eventually did a JV with Polydor. Yeah. And obviously now they're on Polydor properly. It's still Dirty Hit, but it's all major label stuff. Yeah. And then the first show we did was um, The Barfly. And then we did The Borderline. Then we did Heaven. Then we did Shepherd's Bush. 
Then we went on sale with a Brixton. We added a second Brixton. We added a third Brixton. Then we did a Royal Albert Hall. Uh, what time span was this over, Steve? It was about a year between the Barfly and Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. I'm getting a bit muddled on dates now. The following January, I think we did three, two or three Brixtons. Then in the April of that year, we added in a Royal Albert Hall and did it as part of the, the Albert Sessions. And then in the November of that year, we did two Ali Pallies. And then they went away and made the second record. Uh, and then it came back and did four Hammersmiths or four Brixton. No, four Brixton, I think we did. Then we did some, you know what, I've forgotten now. I think I've definitely done Hammersmith with them as well. And then we ended up at 202s. By December 2016, I think I'd done 202s with them. Um, so that's, yeah, in about three or, in about maybe three or four years ago, from the bar flights, 202s. Wow, fantastic. You know, what, what are the key differences or maybe the biggest differences between promoting an artist who's up and coming, an emerging artist, and then one who's already well-established, already has a big fan base? Um, I think it's all about, you're going to go on a journey with them. Right. So the, the difference is that when you're starting out, you just want to sell the tickets. The, the ticket sales to the manager and, and and the team around the artist are like they're they're the barometer of what's really going on. Yeah, okay. everything, yeah, yeah. They're, they're way more important than a Spotify stat. Yeah, or you know, or a Facebook like or an Instagram. I mean, you know, it might sound a bit old school because social media is now more and more and more important, especially in a pandemic. But an actual ticket sale means a person or persons has shelled out hard cash for the right to walk into a room and watch you live. Yeah, and if you get that gig right. They're with you forever. Yeah. So when you're building an act, it's the ticket sales. So you sell out your first show, you go for a slightly bigger show, you sell that one out, you go for another bigger show. And like, I had a manager, I won't name the artist, but I had a manager recently was stressing out at me about something not being sold out. I said to him, I said, look, trust me, the problems you're going to have soon will not be about your ticket sales. It's going to be about via Goga. <laughs> it's going to be about protecting the kids from getting ripped off. Yeah. You're not going to worry soon about the sales. You're going to worry about loads of other shit. I've seen you say a lot about that online, Steve, about this this secondary ticket selling and people getting ripped off. It's something that you're quite passionate about, isn't it? Yeah. Most of the artists I work with really do care about it. So Ed Sheeran does, Catfish do. Like, we put in place strict measures to try and stop people reselling tickets and ripping people off. Uh -huh. So back to the question, you know, they're the sorts of considerations we now have when we're thinking about an Ed Sheeran tour, how we're going to stop people mass harvesting tickets to sell for a profit. That money leaves the industry. doesn't go to Ed, doesn't go to me. But in the case of tickets outs, the money, they're not paying the VAT, they're not paying the PRS. You know, We're not just... talking about one person here, are we? Who does it once no, in a yeah. blue moon? This is a systematic thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's the key difference. Yeah. 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 So but anyway, back, back to developing bands, I mean... First time you put your first show on sale, you just want to know about the ticket sales and, and how quickly they went and how much did, how much were they. And, you know, then you go on a journey. Yeah. And in the case of my biggest client, the journey just it gets to the point where, you know, if we did four Wembley stadiums in 2018, we sold them all out. It's like, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, as much as I get to... Um, call myself Ed's promoter, the reality is now is that Ed's promoted in the UK by a big, big team of people. That, yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, I have to lead that team alongside Stuart Galbraith, the CEO of Kilimanjaro, and alongside Dan Elam from Scorpio, who's my partner on Ed Sheeran in the UK. Yeah. And, and then also alongside John Ollier, who's his agent. We're all friends, but we're all working together on the biggest artists in the world. And we all get to share in the glory. <laughs> 
we get to share in the stress. Yeah, come hand in hand. Don't <laughs> um, so it's an it's amazing. It's a real family vibe around it. The artists, everyone knows each other. We're all on the same. We're all on Team Ed, really. And we all do our job. Yeah, and he recognises that as well. So it's 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 amazing to be with him um, around him because he's a force of energy and um, yeah, I'm very humbled <laughs> to still be working with him. He seems such a top guy as well. He's very difficult to even if you're not into his music, it's very difficult to dislike. Cause he just seems such a top bloke. One of my favourite stories about Ed is I stood with him in Australia at a gig. Well, before he's he's going to be going on in a few hours, I'm stood talking to him and Ryan McMullen, the sport act. Right. And Ryan's a singer-songwriter from Belfast Island, who I promote. Yeah. And he was on tour with Ed in Australia. Because Ed just takes people randomly, takes someone. Yeah, like didn't that on is tour, he yeah. the guy that he picked himself? I read about this. He he saw yeah. him and wanted him to support him, didn't he? Yeah. 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 So Ryan's great, great lad. We've got Ryan's first ever UK tour on sale. And he's doing the sugar mill. Do you mean now or back then you're talking? Back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. So 2018, he's got his tour on sale. He's doing the sugar mill. Done about 60 tickets, surly doors. Okay. It's one of the poorest selling gigs on the tour because Stoke tends to be. Yeah. Um, and so me, Ryan, and Ed are stood around talking. We're talking about his tour. And I said to Ryan, I went, thing is, Ryan, what you've got to realize, mate, is until you can sell tickets in Stoke, you're nobody. <laughs> Don't matter how many you can sell in Manchester, how many you can sell in London and Glasgow and Birmingham. It's places like Stoke in this country where when you can sell 400 tickets there, you sell them anywhere. And then Ed goes, you know, Steve owns a sugar mill, don't you? And like, I'm literally like so <laughs> buzzing when he said that. I tried not to like, I was like, oh, yeah. it was a cucumber. But like in my, inside my head, I'm going, that is amazing. I'm in a football stadium in Sydney, Australia. But this guy sold out for three nights. or something ridiculous. It's one of the biggest stars on the planet. And I'm stood talking to him and he's telling his mate, Ryan, and my mate, Ryan, no, Steve owns a sugar mill, don't you? I just thought that's just insane. And he loves the fact to still own a small venue in Stoke that puts on new acts. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Is there a difference between promoting bands of different genres or working in different styles? You know, I'm thinking of, say, Ed Sheeran versus like Metallica, both massive acts, but very different in sound and then perhaps audience as well. Does that have an effect on how they get promoted? Uh, you know, part of part of my job is marketing. The principles of marketing are you basically find your audience. So you understand your audience, you understand the demographic, uh, and you understand and you work out how to get to them. So it doesn't really matter if it's Ed Sheeran, Simply Red, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Muse. You'll analyze the audience and then tailor the marketing to that audience. Right. So the genre is almost irrelevant on one level other than working out who the audience is but um the bigger you get the more preconceptions about the audience don't really ring true right like i bet you there's someone watching ed sheeran who also likes to go and watch metallic yeah and yet there would be people out there going no no no, no. So, so not not a chance i'm telling you now even if like ed himself takes the piss out of people in the audience who've been dragged along by their girlfriends or wives and he always gets a big laugh when he says that. Yeah. And I'm telling you now, those people, those fellas, who've been dragged along by their missuses, I'd put money on at least half of them going away going, you know what? Whilst I wouldn't listen to his records, he's fucking good, isn't he? Yeah. 
Yeah, and but there is there is people. I mean, I love great pop, but I love rock. I got I go and watch Metallica because I'm a you know play guitar. I love rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you do a lot of big rock, don't you, Killy? You're quite mm-hmm. known for the big rock yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. But I love great pop. Uh, you know, the two I, can I'm, sit side by side to me. I'm the same. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I would watch. I go and see Slayer, Metallica, any heavy metal, speed metal band, and love it. Yeah. And I equally go and watch Bruno Mars. Yeah. I saw a video the other day, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. Oh yeah, it's, a, it's it's the current song that's out at the minute. I think it's unbelievable, and I watched the video, and I was it made me smile. The way the band just moved together, the groove, the vocals, it was a bit tongue in cheek, seventies smooth soul. I just thought that whoever's come up with that is fucking genius. Yeah, and um, I would happily pay money to go watch Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars do a set. Yeah, um, I actually don't care about genres. Just I just love music. <laughs> Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack are bringing that kind of seventies disco funk sound back, but in a in a way. It's like when you were talking. I think when you mentioned the nineteen seventy five about oh, it was Catfish about mm-hmm. doing old music but in a new way. But this yeah. is the thing: is these guys are fans of music, say from the seventies, yeah. yeah, and they're yeah. so talented and they've got a new perspective on it that you do hear these older sounds coming back through. And guess what? People love it. <laughs> People love disco. Like it wasn't cool for a while, but it's back. And that's seventies yeah. soft rock. We were talking about the seventies soft rock drum sound that you can't. No one does it anymore. The Eagles. And I was drums, like, I've been yeah. looking for ages to try and get seventies drums. Those really dry drums that are really deep. And he went, I found it. I've been looking for the same thing. It was. It was an hallelujah moment for me when you played that. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a band we're working with from London called Silver Twin. Right. And when I first saw them, there's a video they just re- recorded in a rehearsal studio. And the four of them are singing, and the four are all playing live, and they're all smiling and having a great time. And it was like listening to a cross between the Cars, Big Star, ELO, and Jellyfish. So it's like 70s power pop rock. Oh, you've made me want to hear these, Steve, I'm telling you. They're called, they're called Silver Twin, and like they, they've not done anything yet. They're really? literally they're going to do a residence. We were about to start working on them last March before all this kicked off. And um, one of my younger promoters, Peter, is working with them, and he found them. And he was like, oh, my God, I saw this band live the other day. They were having such fun. They were amazing. It was incredible. Like, and he was literally, like, shitting himself about how good they were. And then I, and then I watched it, and I was like, have you heard of it? And I le- reeled off all these bands. And he's like, no. Nope. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. well, check them out. <laughs> but I just thought authenticity is around the corner. Yeah. Um, People who can, there's a massive jazz scene in London. Right. Like these kids are at music school and they can all play everything and they're all into playing with each other and they, and they swap bands and they're in collectives and Ezra Collective and Steam Down and all these people. There's a bunch of musicians all just playing each other's bands and right. they're all real. They can all really actually play. Do you know what's really good though, Steve, through chatting to you today is the passion that comes across from you and the people that you work with for the industry still, as as fans of music. The way you said that the other co-promoter found this band and came and said, wow, I found this band. For people listening to this, for our students and other people that are going to... It's a really refreshing thing to hear, isn't it, that there's still that... It's not just about, right, what well, is this going to make the money? We all need to make money to live. You've got overheads to pay. But to hear that it still comes from that passion is fantastic. Mm. I don't think you can fake it, because I can't... Um... I'm really shit liar. Um, <laughs> okay. I I can't walk into the dressing room of an act that I've just seen do a really average gig and go, oh my God, guys, that was incredible. You know, it's just, 
if I saw a band I really liked do an average gig, find a way to be positive with them afterwards, but, but I wouldn't blow smoke up their arse for the sake of it. And then if they asked me what I thought, I'd give them an honest answer about how they could improve their show. Yeah. You know, what is it that you look for in people that are new to the industry? You know, what advice could you give to someone who wants to get started out in the world of promoting? If you, if you go through the list of jobs a promoter does, uh, when I first started putting on gigs in Stoke, I made the phone call to get the act and did the financial deal, put the tickets on sale at the box office. I collected the ticket figures and sent them to the agent. I then started dealing with the tour manager to arrange what time they can get in, go through the rider, agree what we're going to supply or not, um, tell them what time we'll be there, ring the sound engineers to book them to come and work that night, ring the security to book them to come and work that night, ring the guy that's going to do the load of stuff in out of the van that night, yeah. go on Coral Draw and design a poster, ring up the printers and get them ordered, ring up the fly posting guy and get him to come and do the fly posting and so meet him with a brown paper bag on a Saturday morning with £100 in cash in it. Um, <laughs> like, literally all that. And then, then the day of the gig arrives, and I used to wake up on gig day and I would be shitting myself. Because I was always nervous on gig day. I don't yeah. know why. In them days, we tried to avoid doing buyouts because it was our money. Yeah. So we would try and um, make... We used to make sandwiches, put them on an MDF board covered in tin foil, um, do a massive big pile of sandwiches... Um, cling film them, stick them in the back of the car and stick them on the bar and go, there's a rider, lads or girls. Then the, then we do the sound check, deal with any issues arising. Then we'd open the doors. Then I'd be on the door. I'd have the collect list from the ticket agents. I'd have the um, guest list from the band. I'd have the tour manager come up to me while I was on the door, being a pain in the arse at times, asking me questions. Of, Where do we do this? And how do we do that? Deal with that. Then I'd swap the door with the other guy that I did gigs with and go and watch the band for a bit. And then I'd go and say hello to the band, check they were okay. Then they'd go on, deal with the venue, uh, pay the venue because we were hiring it externally. Uh, I've done the, the walk of shame to the cash point to draw money out of the wall to pay for it because it hadn't broken even. And then the next day I'd send um, a copy of the settlement to the, to the agent and um, start the whole process again with another act. And like all those jobs that you do at that point are what a promoter does. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you develop those skills and you get more experience and you start paying people to do the door or paying people to do the guest list. So I uh, made a lot of mistakes, but you never stop learning. And then get what I would say to anyone who wants to get involved in live music is get involved. If it, if it means going to the local venue and asking for a job behind the bar so you get to see the gigs for free while serving pints, then get to know the promoter at that venue and say, I'll be up for helping if you ever need anyone to do the door, the guest list, um, help load the stuff in. Um, I'll be up for helping. Oh, by the way, um, I, I'm really good at writing. I'm doing a journalism degree. So if you want anyone to do to write your press releases or um, I'm good at, I've actually now to use Photoshop. So you want to handle the artwork. Mm. And then let's say that that relationship develops or the, or the promoter leaves to go and do gigs at another venue and the guy that owns the bar which have been putting the bands on, says, shit, I need someone to hold the diary and book the bands. You go, I've been helping that guy for the last six months. I've been doing the artwork. I've been doing the guest list. I've been doing helping the bands in. I've got a little bit of an idea of how it works. I'll have a go. Next thing you know, you're now the promoter at the, let's call it the Eagle Inn in Manchester. Let's say they had an in-house booker. Like, next thing you know, Joe Bloggs is the Eagle Inn booker. Yeah. 
Because the first gig I ever saw was Queen as a 14-year-old uh-huh. at the NEC. And when people say, how did you get into the music industry? I always go, I went to see Queen at 14 years old. It was mind-blowing. And pretty much everything that's ever happened since is down to that. Yeah. And I just loved it. And I always have done. And all right, you get a bit jaded now as you get older. And you take it a bit for granted. I've had to pinch myself at times in my life recently, in the last, certainly in the last five or six years, I've had to pinch myself and go, if someone had told 16-year-old Steve what you'd be doing and who you'd be with and where you would be, yeah. like I'd have just thought, that's somebody else in another life. That ain't going to happen to me. But it can happen, but... It just shows opportunities there if you take it, Steve, and you, you make, you know... And you put the hard working. Because it's been, there's times that promoting when you were talking about those early days when you must have thought, oh, God, I can't do this anymore. When you've lost your own money on a show, you're the little independent guy. You must have been that close to quitting, but you didn't, you know. <laughs> Several times. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, um, when we, uh, we, we started putting on gigs at the Sugar Mill and we said to the guy that owned it, we found these kit. we got, because we opened a rehearsal studio for bands and a recording studio. That's, that's something else I've done. So I've done a recording studio, done a rehearsal room in Stoke. And we found these kids and we thought, these are fucking brilliant. They're like the Happy Mondays meets the Sex Pistols. And they were a riot, a bunch of 18-year-olds. And I, I knew they were going to get a deal. I just had a feeling. And our, our ambition, me and Ant, because this guy Ant became my business partner, the guy that I looked up to and all the rest oh, of it. Okay. He was my business partner. And um, we decided to open the studio, open a rehearsal room, and we're going to find a Stoke band, we're going to get them a record deal, and we're going to be managers. Because I'm a failed musician. He was a failed musician. All right, let's be managers. <laughs> so um, uh, we got them signed to Island Records. And we said to Phil that owned the Sugar Mill, the minute this band gets signed, we're off. And he was like, what? I was like, even when we lose money, you charge us full rent. I made five quid out of the Sugar Hill gang, 300 people at 10 quid at the time. Wow. It, the place was rocking. I made a fiver. You still charge me the rent. Like, as far as we're concerned, promoting's a mugs game. So thanks for all of your help, <laughs> but we're off. And it wasn't brinksmanship. It wasn't me being a trying to, like, put a gun to his head to do something about it. It was just like, there's no money in this. You're the last person in the room to get paid. You get taught, treated like shit by the, by the agents sometimes. You're, you're taken for a fool. And I've had enough of it. It's doing my head in. I'm done. I'm out. This band are going to get a record deal. We're going to go and be managers. A few couple of weeks went by. Phone went, can I see you and Ant? And I was like, uh, oh, fuck's sake. All right, we'll be up in an hour. All right. Got up there. Took us around the corner to another bar. And he went, listen, guys, cards on the table. You're doing a brilliant job. I want you to have a share of the club because that way you'll see that it's worth doing. Uh, okay. He's like, so I want to sell you 50% of the sugar milk. And I'm 32 years old, and Ant's slightly older than me, like 35. And I've got a glass of water in my hand. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, we can't afford that. And he's like, no, no, look, you know, look, let's talk. I'll show you the numbers. We'll we'll figure something out. I was like, there's no way, Phil, because I, I just assumed he's going to want hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah. I was like, there's no way I can afford it. I'm sorry, it's a great idea. Look, don't worry about it. Let me get the numbers together. So one thing led to another. He got the numbers together. He, sh- he told us what he wanted for a half share. It wasn't as scary as we thought it would be. He was very clever, though, because we doubled the turnover in two years. We tripled it in three years. We quadrupled it in four years. Like he knew that. Like, yeah. 
And actually, he, we paid him a bit of money. We both took a bank loan out to get our, our share because we bought 25% each. And we got a bank loan. And then, and then he also had a bit of an earn out for himself. So he's like, look, I'll, you can pay this for it. And then I'll take the next X amount of profit from the company that you generate. And then once I've had that, we'll be equal. We'll be quits, yeah. So we did the deal and that's how it happened. And, and then the band did get signed to Ireland. Um, and, and of course that went really well. And for a couple of years, then we got dropped. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, Karen, I was still DJing at the same time and I was, and, the, and putting on the gigs, I realized then, okay, so I can put 300 people in the venue, make a fiver on the door and take four grand on the bar. Right. Okay. Oh, and now the club night on Friday and Saturday, there's no band to pay on that. It's just a DJ, which happened to be me. But I saw what the door took. I saw what the bar took. We added extra club nights. We started to book bands we would never have booked because we knew the bar would be monstrous. The whole thing as a circle made sense. So it's actually a great a great offer in the end what he did for you. I bet you're glad you went for that meeting. Definitely. Yeah. And, and it all went so well that by the time we got to 2006 or seven, I was putting on... If you came to Stoke to do a gig, it was us putting it on. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the way up to 1,500 tickets. But we knew about the Sugar Mill back in Manchester, the bands here that were playing it. We knew that the Sugar Mill was a great venue to play. It was. Yeah. It was. It was always had a great reputation, Steve. You know, when you were doing Kid British, I remember that gig where they sold it out, and it was brilliant. It was like rocking, wasn't it? That gig um, got them playlisted on Radio One. Your yeah, at your yeah. venue because I filmed yeah. it from the balcony, and there was people like jumping on the stage. We we sent that to the, the label. I sent the label. They sent it to Radio One. They, that got them playlisted because they were choosing between them and another act. And when they got that video, they went, wow, it's kicking off with these. And people don't realise how important the small venue circuit in this country is because of things like that. Yeah, completely. Um, it's the engine room of the entire music business. Yeah. That goes back to Al's question and when you're saying about getting involved. They need to start at the beginning and see how the small venues operate, don't they, and learn the ropes like that. Because yeah, that, that yeah. like you say, that is where everything starts. And then you'll get your breaks afterwards. Mm. But uh, Steve, listen, thanks for being so frank, so honest, so passionate. I owe you a pint <laughs> or two next time we meet up at a show, okay? I look forward to it. All right, bud. Have a great year. Um, and you, all the best, guys. Thank you, Steve. Steve. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So thanks again to Steve for chatting with David and myself and taking the time to share his stories and insights. If this conversation has got you interested in learning more about working in the music industry, then you may want to check out the Music Business and Creative Industries degree course that we offer at Spirit Studios. To find out the details about this degree as well as more information on all of our courses, then please visit us at our website at spiritstudios.ac.uk. 